Hello and welcome to Books and Badgers. We're in season three. This is episode four, the big Madame Mayo review episode. Uh, you know me, your co-host Colin, but we have our amazing panel of contributors here today. Uh, Trevor, Tiff, and William. Trevor, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you guys? Tiff, great. William, how are you guys doing? <laughs> <laughs> great, you guys. William, I'll let you go first. Rough start. Yeah, we're doing good. I'm doing good. Um, it, it's been a long weekend of kid wrangling. So I, I feel like this is my constant, how are you doing response, but I am very excited to just turn off brain for a little while and hang out with you guys. Oh, yeah, we got a lot of brain to, to go through as well. So <laughs> with this book, uh, Tiff, how are you doing? Yeah, so, you know, um, off recording, I held back letting you guys know this, but uh, I just finished reading the book right before I logged on. Um, <laughs> so I am fully entrenched in the book right now, which I think is going <laughs> to, I think is going to be really interesting for this discussion because I am still living inside of it right now. Um, and so many feelings are still like inside <laughs> of me um yeah so we might we, yeah. we might bring you crashing back down to earth or we might send you to new heights it's really a gamble uh, who knows you know i don't know well yeah i'm interested to see how this goes well let's jump right into it So first, uh, kind of a roundtable discussion. What are some of the things that you liked about this book? Some of the positives. Um, William, let's start with you. Okay. So I I feel like y'all have teed this one up for me multiple times in the last three episodes. The horror. There is so much horror in this book, and I love it. They go with the creepy culty horror with everything going on with Lomehedge. They go with the the home invasion horror with the way that Slagar slips his way into Redwall and steals their babies. We've got monster horror where something's in the Abbey and nobody even realizes it until it grabs baby Rolo and that massive bird on the stairs trying to kidnap him. There are just so many great concentrated moments of, oh, this is terrifying um that you know played exactly into my wheelhouse i i appreciated it a lot yeah we specifically get references to body horror we also have uh, i i love that you brought up the um the slagars kind of attack because you know th they wake up in a daze and mrs bankful is dead and um and hugo's dead like there's so much that happens just right at the beginning of the book that kind of sets that 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 uh uh, idea of horror going forward. Uh, sorry, Tiff, I cut you off. No, no, no. I, I want to follow up um, with, I did not enjoy reading this book. Like, because <laughs> I, I do not like horror. <laughs> I, you know, I, I thought I was pretty neutral about horror, um, but I don't know. I don't actually know that I've ever read a horror book before. Um, and so, and read, and not that Madame Mayo is a horror book, it, it's not, but like <laughs> going through it, I had a really hard time with it. Um, because right off the bat, the main theme of the book is children being separated from their parents. And this is the first time I've read the book as a mom, 
and oh my god I had a really hard time with it like that this they starting off the book with a little baby crying over his mom saying hey yeah. get me get me out of the rain and she's dead oh my gosh <laughs> that, horrible. Just, that that set the tone for the whole book for me and I just had a really hard time with it uh, emotionally basically Tiff I'm 100% with you because um like I, I was kind of thinking when when Matthias and Cornflower are just like running around trying to secure the Abbey, trying to figure out what was going on after Slagar, and then they're like, "You saw the kids, right?" I was kind of thinking, would I ever do that in that situation? You know, like you're so dazed that you kind of forget where your kids are at, or would my initial response be like, "Oh, I need to like go and find my kids." I mean, mom and dad did that to me, like 100. <laughs> percent. Mean, I'm not even joking. This is a real story. We were. We were hanging out at some friends of theirs. Uh, this was years and years and years ago. Um, I think I was maybe nine or ten years old, and uh, we were we were basically doing kind of a road trip style visit. And we visited some of my parents' friends. At the time, we were a large enough group, um, you know, family plus luggage meant that we had to travel in two vehicles. And so my parents had walkie talkies that they used in order to communicate back and forth about, you know, who was with whom or who was in what car. And so we were packing up to go and I had forgotten something inside this people's house. And I told my dad, I said, hey, don't leave yet. I'm going to be right back. I just have to get my stuff. So I ran in to get my stuff and I came back out and both of them had taken off and they had both thought that I had just got in each other's cars. Oh my and gosh. It's exactly like home alone. <laughs> yeah. You got home alone. <laughs> yeah. So, so what I'm saying is like, it's not inconceivable that like, you know, that was just like a normal moment of <laughs> trying to leave. It's not inconceivable that in like a moment of crisis, you wouldn't be like, but where are the kids? You know, you just assume that uh, everything's okay. Yeah. And they, they just went on with their lives. And uh, we, you know, one day I found this, <laughs> I found this guy reading Redwall on the sidewalk and I was like, Hey, you should join this podcast. And he turns out to be my brother. So. <laughs> Sorry, no. Tiff. That was a dumb joke to cut you off with. No, no, no. I was gonna say I, 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 I bought that because it was Redwall, you know, because it's a safe space. Well, you know, up until that moment, they, you know, it felt like the safe space where you know everybody would roam free. You didn't have to watch your kids as closely. Um, I mean, that's one of the things I love about Redwall is that you know it. They feel so safe within those walls that you know you really can you know, be independent or you can go and find community, you know. Um, I really love that about the community. Um, but I was going to say that, what was I going to say? There was another point I was going to make about. We were talking about some horror, horror aspects and, um, yeah. you know, just kind of starting off immediately with the kidnapping. Yeah, I don't remember what it was. Sorry, I'll think of it later. This is this is definitely the darkest book of the series so far though i i think we can absolutely agree about that i'm in williams camp i think that the horror elements of this book are absolutely my favorite parts i feel like it's not just one kind of horror either it's all kinds of different horror 
just packed into what I feel is a really intense read. Uh, but it's way heavier in tone than either of the two books to come from uh, up before it. Absolutely. And I, that's what I was going to say is that I feel like bait and switched. <laughs> I, cause well, okay. Cause when I've read um, the books in the past, I didn't read them in order. Um, and so this is the first time I've read them in this particular order. And the first two books are, even though there's battles, I always feel like it, there's this warm, safe place in Redwall, you know, and it's exciting, but you know that the good guys are always going to win. And there's always this like feeling of optimism throughout the book. And that lacking in this book, you know, coming off of those first two books where I really felt like that, and then that lacking in this book, it just really was jarring to me. Okay, I love that because I think it it reemphasizes why I like the horror aspects of this so much and gives us kind of a launch point for some other some other topics to discuss. Um, this feels like if we're going to pick a horror trope that it is more than anything else, it is a home invasion horror story. Um, the reason that home invasion horror stories work so well is because your homes are considered this safe space where you can go to at the end of the day, you can be yourself, nothing bad is going to happen there. Home invasion horror is an intentional destruction of that safe space, an invasion of it. In the past two Redwall books, in Redwall and in Mossflower, we had safe spaces built up and we had uh, invaders trying to break into those safe spaces, but that was the end goal. If they got into the safe space, then they would have won and Clooney would have won or Sarmino would have won. This one, we start off with the enemies in the gates. They have invalidated the safe space, not just from the ground with uh, with um, Slagar the Cruel, but also from the skies with General Ironbeak. This whole story just leans into what you thought was safe is no longer safe. And I think it gives it and the other horror elements give this whole story a lot more weight than the last two had because the stakes are raised. We know that if the heroes aren't successful here, really horrifying stuff is already happening. And it's not a matter of delaying those horrifying things or stopping those horrifying things. It's a matter of reclaiming things from the horrors. Um, and I think that's what really good horror books do well. I think that's what really good home invasion horror books do well. And that is, I think, if we're going to put a bow on it, what I really appreciated the most about Madame Mayo here was it got that in spades. Yeah. So um, I, I totally agree. I think that's a, that's a great perspective on uh, it's not, not something I re had really considered when we were doing the, the other episodes, but the, I think there's like a definitely definite change in tone of the book when we get to the painted ones and then when we get to Malkaris that just like really keeps that creepy vibe going like Malkaris is genuinely uh, unsettling because it's like the opposite of Redwall <laughs> like it's the complete uh it's it's the complete opposite like instead of trying to serve its inhabitants it's only to serve one person um it's not really to provide protection it's to per it's to enslave and imprison um, it's underground rather than being above ground. Like everything about it is just the complete opposite to that. 
Um, and then also the painted ones are just like, I, I still don't really know what they are, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, we're recording this episode and I, I, I think that they're, you know, feral rats that are in the, the jungle that have just gone awry. But um, there's just a lot of, uh, uh, with there being so many unknowns, like it's just extremely creepy. Um, and that kind of continues in, in the book, in my opinion. Yeah, the unknown part of it um, uh, really sets the tone because, you know, so we're used to having the two enemies. Um, there's, you know, the direct enemy and then there's sort of this one that's out there looming that we don't know as much about. But this one, we really didn't know anything about that secondary, you know, um, villain. Like we got little scenes from inside of it, but we didn't we didn't know what it was. We didn't know what kind of creature it was. We didn't know exactly what their goal was, you know? Um, and so, yeah, not being able to get inside of that secondary villain's head inside of Malkris was definitely very creepy because we just didn't know what was coming. Yeah. So for you, Tiff, what was one of the things, I know you said that you didn't really enjoy reading the, the horror aspect of it, but what were, what was one of the things that was a, a positive for you? I liked how much action there was. It was really, really jam-packed with so many different plot lines. And I didn't really, I didn't feel like any plot lines really got lost. Um, the only one that I felt kind of unsatisfied by was the really old uh, rabbit that came in and gave the, you know, gave little bits of information, <laughs> little <laughs> stone. Um, but every other than that, every single little creature that came in, um, we got, you know, a background story, sort of a satisfying conclusion. I just was really impressed with just how jam-packed it was. And it just really kept the action moving every single page. Yeah, I agree. The pacing of it is really good, too. Like, overall, we get... I think the, the pacing, in my opinion, is a little bit better than um, what we saw in Redwall. I don't think it's as good as, as Mossflower, but um, in my opinion, better than Redwall. Except for what's going on with cornflower and the armor which i've talked about enough in our third episode but this happens too many times like we don't need to do this this three three nines in a row uh, I, I want to pitch it over to william because as soon as you said like i feel like i like the pacing he came off mute and <laughs> i know he's got a hot take for us yeah let's hear it i yeah, I'm in the other camp here. For all the strengths that this book has, and I think this is going to be a reoccurring thing with my comments for the episode, so I want to go ahead and get it get it aired out here. Uh, for, for all of the things that this book does well, I felt like the pacing was not one of them. I felt like the Redwall mystery in the beginning wasn't very intriguing, uh, trying to find the map to Loam Hedge. Yeah, you're talking uh, about Abbas Jermaine's quest. Yeah. Yeah. That that didn't have a lot for me. Um the, the like y'all were saying, cornflower with the uh with the ghost armor. That was funny the first time and then they were doing it for the fourth time and I was kind of in the Abbott's corner like, okay, you guys need to stop this now. <laughs> um and then also just in general, the chase with Matthias trying to catch up to Clooney, not Clooney, sorry, Slagar, um, it felt like this exercise in just constantly moving the goalposts. Uh, Matthias caught up to Slagar. He, he caught them. 
Um, but then he gets caught in this weird trap that Matthias like would never realistically have gotten caught in. And then, okay, so now he gets out and he catches back up again. And then, oh, well, now something derailed it a little bit. And we're going to, we're going to push it a little bit farther. It feels like just every time that they set up, okay, this is Matthias's goal. That wasn't really the goal. We knew that the goal was to get to Malkaris and all the rest of this was just kind of side plot filler. And it, it graded on me a little bit by the end. That's so funny. I felt the opposite about it, it you know, because also Maddie Mayo um, and I, I don't know if it's Maddie Mayo or Maddie Mayo. This is one of those I things where Maddie Mayo, yeah. Maddie Mayo. I've always said it Maddie Mayo in my head. Um, but anyway, uh, I, because he, you know, they escaped and then got found. That was another sort of. Um, you know, part of the plot that didn't really seem to add much, but I loved that actually, because I felt like it made it more realistic. I felt like it was Mm. more realistic for slaves to try to get away and then get caught, you know, and kind of this cat and mouse back and forth. I felt like was, um, it wasn't very red wall, you know, because it is usually more linear, you know, you have a goal and you go towards it and you know you always know you're going to make it you know um but it it felt a little bit more realistic to me that they did it that way yeah i uh on that i i i i guess this is kind of a complaint but matthias's brain dead decision to just run into the cave that is the most obvious trap (laughs) i think was the most infuriating part of that and that's really why they got caught again right is because he runs in there i was like I, i just didn't like i mean matthias is so smart and so much of the book and that you know falling for that trap and they all just run in there i just thought it was really dumb correct me if i'm wrong but doesn't orlando even call out he's like that looks it's either orlando or basil and they're like that looks a lot like a trap and matthias is just like yeah who cares let's go spring it anyway guys like i don't know it just yeah he he uses he uh screams out red wall like a war cry and then runs into the cave and then they get <laughs> trapped uh it, i did not like that part i just felt like it was kind of to your point tiff it, you know they they're making progress getting out and then they just get caught again because of matthias's really bad parenting see i felt like the pacing was off for me too and I, I I go back and forth as to like what what is it what what do I have a real problem with in terms of pacing I don't necessarily know that Matthias's quest bothered me so much because I felt like that was what I was reading for and even when I first read it as a kid I remember almost all of the Matthias stuff and like none of the Redwall stuff and I think that's mostly because I felt like I would just read through the Redwall stuff to like hurry it along so I could get back to what I felt was the real meat and potatoes of this story, which was Matthias's quest. And, and so to that end, I felt like the pacing for me worked really well when it was Matthias's story, because there was always like, Oh no. And now this has happened. And is this trip ever even going to work out, you know? Um, And, and the tension was there for me for that. But with Cornflower putting on a suit of armor four times and the Avister main quest that just kind of abruptly ends. And then it's like, oh yeah. And I forgot here's general Ironbeak. You know, it, it felt like that pacing 
was just off all throughout the whole book. And I couldn't quite keep up with the pace of the Redwall stuff. I was just like, this is like too slow for me. I, I feel like it's too padded out. We probably could gut it and just get back to more wear it fighting because that's where the, this book really shines for me. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised we haven't talked, like no one ha has mentioned that um, yet. But I think the fighting in this book is really good. Like when the action does happen, I think the action is really engaging. And I think you're right, Trevor, the pacing of Matthias's quest feels way better than uh, with Cornflower. Now that I'm kind of thinking about it, like I did complain a lot about uh, Abbastermain's little side quest thing. And I think I had the least amount of notes on what was going on in Redwall compared to what was going on. Um, with Matthias and crew. Now, speaking of Matthias and crew, what did you guys think about the new characters that we saw um, with Orlando and uh, 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 what is his name? Uh, Jabez and Cheek. Um, we also get Red Strike in there. Like what? Are, or uh, Strike in there. <laughs> strike the Red Kite. Uh, yeah. What did you guys think about the new characters? I I loved them. I mean, I thought that they fit in really well. Um, with the Redwall crew, I, um, <laughs> I, it was funny. I was, I was really sensitive to, you know, the fact that all these kids had been separated from their parents and then they bring in Cheek, who's an orphan, you know, and I'm like, oh my gosh, more orphans, more kids, you know, but, but <laughs> then in, in, in the end, they, they all get, do get to find a, um, a home in Redwall, which is really great. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I liked them. I I did have a trouble, a little bit of trouble with Strike. I didn't feel like well, we didn't really get to know her very well, um, and so that was a little weird. I feel like um, that she came in so conveniently, saved them. We didn't get to know her very well, um, but as far as the ones that traveled with Matthias, um, I thought they fit really well and with the Redwall crew. I feel like my feeling about the new cast uh, and I have feelings about the old cast too, but my feeling with the new cast is that I wanted so much more of them than this book was really willing to commit to. Jabez sounds like such a fun character and his introduction is absolutely hilarious. I love the introdu introduction that we get to him and his family and to Orlando. I just had so much fun with that. And then we almost never hear from Jabez again. He's there, he's mentioned, but he has no input on like any of what really starts happening toward the end of the book. I felt like the same was true of Matameo, who is supposed to be a central character of this book. And we get some great characterization from him in book one. And then he's absent all of book two, and book three comes in with him too late to really affect much, except, you know, like rejoin Orlando's forces as they're fighting all of the black robes. So I felt like while there are standouts, like Cheek is such a wonderful character. Like I'll take two of Basil any day of the week. Um, but, but for every Cheek that we got, there was like this other side character that was not as well developed or that we didn't get enough from because this cast is just 
so huge. I mean, <laughs> this is like the Avengers Endgame of the Red Wall series, where we have so many returning characters to to catch up with and see what happens next in their story. And then we have this new cast that doesn't even have enough time to really shine on their own outside of like maybe one or two moments because it's just so packed with everything else. Yeah, I kind of think that the new characters help to refine some of the old characters because I was not a fan of Cheek when he was introduced. However, later on, Cheek and Basil together just made me love Basil even more. Like when he's throwing enemies trying to hit <laughs> the the guy, the, the priestess, I forgot his name, um, at the very end of the book, just like trying to throw him over and knock him off his, his perch. Like those moments were so funny to me. Um, but then we get like some new characters like Scan, who I think just helps to elevate Logalog as a character and is such a cool subversion to what we've seen some characters be like in the last two books that we read. Like Scan's attempt to betray, but then ending ending up um, having this horrible demise in the end as a, you know, as part of the slave line is horrific. But I think his character serves a lot of like, um, like, a, you know, Logalog as a character um helps to serve his development so much more so we've kind of been dancing around it i think we just need to full-on get into the, the some of the negatives because i think i think i out of all the three books i have way more strong opinions about what doesn't work in this book <laughs> compared to the other two i think even compared to redwall um that i, I think it's worth worth going into uh so tiff let's start with you what what are what's one of the biggest negatives um in your opinion you know, it's so funny in our positives conversation, we, we ended up getting pretty negative. Um, and, and the problems that you guys were talking about, the pacing, um, you know, some of the characters that we didn't get to know that well, I actually didn't have trouble with that, this, this book, because there are definitely times in the last books where um, I was frustrated by some of those things. Um, and, and I really didn't, I, I was all in, you know, I was kind of bought into the pacing and, and kind of just um, taking the story at face value and, um, you know, not, I, I don't know. And so um, I didn't have trouble with those things like you guys did. For me, it was mostly about the emotional experience, to be honest. It was mostly mostly about the fact that I... I just wanted my happy, optimistic red wall where we knew that they were always going to win and all the characters always believed that they were always going to win, you know, and that there were these silly villains that, you know, we were kind of happy to see go. And, um, and I didn't get that. <laughs> it's a very different book. Um, but, you know, I said before that I really liked the um all the action and um i love the inventors and game comparison because i i really liked all that i really liked how much was packed into the book um i had i really had fun with it and so actually hearing you guys talk about the negatives ironically um i have a better opinion of the book now than i did before we started talking <laughs> um because I, I liked the writing of it. I don't know. I liked the pacing. I guess I disagree with you guys on that one. Um, for me, it was mostly just about that emotional experience of um, not getting the red wall that I came, that I felt like I signed up for. 
my all right this is my hot take this this is my uh <laughs> this is my my pitch for like what i really wanted to happen in this book that didn't quite happen um i would have killed off matthias like i that is my biggest complaint of this book was that with all of the kind of heavy emotional <laughs> trauma that this book inflicts I absolutely thought that we were leaning into a major character death and that death would have been for me, Matthias. I felt like for Matameo to step forward, it would have really played into kind of like this big um, kind of like weighty arc for Matameo's character growth. And I think it could have tied in really well too with the overarching theme of like the destructiveness and the destructive tendency of revenge, because this whole book is very revenge motivated. Slagar wants revenge. Matthias wants revenge on Slagar for what he did. Orlando wants revenge. Um, and there's this, this tie in with the revenge arc too, I think with, Loam Hedge and like it being the kind of inverse of uh, Redwall as we come to know it, or, or rather not Loam Hedge, but uh, Malchoris as like this kind of like perversion of the Redwall kind of ethos. And so for me, um, I kept waiting for it to happen. I kept wanting it to happen. And the fact that it never went that direction, um, I think really disappointed me as a reader because I, I felt like Jake's was all in on this like weighty drama, um, but then pulls his punches back because it's like we still kind of are are obligated toward this like super happy like and Matthias makes it back with his kids kind of energy. Um, I just wanted there to be a bolder choice made in this book. And I felt like we were primed for it and just didn't get it. Yeah, you had mentioned at the very end of the book, you know, when Cornflower is waiting for Matthias and crew to get back, she's waiting at the wall, she goes out and she sees him and realizes that it's not Matthias, it's Matameo is the one that made it back. And how he has to take up the new mantle of the the warrior Redwall. Like, I think that there's so many things that are kind of in place that help to support that narrative. But I think the reality is, so many kids would have been heartbroken if that had happened <laughs> that I don't think there'd be another 20 books, you know, <laughs> after this. So uh, I think Jake's made the right decision not doing that. But I, I fully agree with you, Trevor. I thought it was going to happen. Um, I thought it was going to happen. I did too. I and And I agree with you. I was fully ready for it to happen. I thought that it was a really satisfying moment um, when he fell over into the cavern um for him to die there i thought that that would have been a really satisfying conclusion and that we still would have gotten our redwall happy ending you know um and you know based on how much battling there was going on the fact that we didn't lose a main character definitely um i i just kind of accept that accepted that as you know hey redwall he feels like he needs to be happy and optimistic you know so he didn't kill off any main characters um i kind of accepted it and so i wasn't you know i wasn't upset about it like you were but i was fully expecting it and i felt like it wouldn't have been that big of a blow honestly because 
we had all these other amazing characters surviving. We had Maddie, Matameo to like take the reins afterwards. You know, um, I definitely felt like it was unexpected that he survived. I, yeah, there were so many moments when I feel like Jake's was setting us up for it. You know, it's Matthias was on that run from almost the very beginning of the book. And there's like moment after moment after moment where we feel like there's this foreshadowing, this foretelling, like this is the last stand, you know, and then they make it through and it's like, and then this is the next last stand. I want to open it up for William because I know he has very strong feelings about um, Warbeak's role in this book. Um, and, and, and I kind of want to hear from him, you know, some of his take about the conflict and the trauma of this you know, particular story. Um, we're not ready for the Warbeak discussion yet. This is, this is not the time or the place <laughs> quite yet. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, the, the soapbox is being built behind me as we speak, and I will climb aboard it when the time is right. But um, All right, well, I'll, I'll go with my hot take then before we get, okay. <laughs> get to those big character deaths. My hot take is that I think the, second, the secondary vi villain of General Ironbeak is the least interesting story that we've had. Because he just comes out of nowhere and then the solution comes out of nowhere, which is strike. And that whole kind of subplot, I mean, I, it, the convenience of the sparrows leaving as well and him coming in. And then, you know, they all, all they did was really give some instructions, but like all that just felt really unnecessary in my opinion that it, it just kind of felt like filler. Okay. Now, now we set up the Warby discussion. <laughs> <laughs> now let's do this. Uh, perfect. Um, yeah. So kind of putting my own little bows on the things that all of y'all have been saying um, with the pacing being the bad, uh, the, the negative of this. Uh, I think my best case in point for that is silent Sam. Um, this, this, book is so bloated with so many potentially cool characters and stories yeah. that we needed to dig into and there just was too much going on at any given moment for us to actually dig deep on anything silent sam talks now we don't get any <laughs> any explanation of why he talks now we don't get anything about the story of that we don't get any like inkling about what grown-up sam what his personality is at all we get like two lines of very inconsequential dialogue from him and that's it and it's like we gotta go we gotta we gotta have a cave collapse on matthias after he makes a bad decision it's like, no yeah it's hell. like it's like a matter of convenience that sam's there because he's like oh yeah i remember this guy he used to be chicken hound and this happened like it's yeah. yeah that seems like the only reason why he's part of the the slave line so then so then for the our issues with the ending that was my big issue with the ending not so much that nobody of consequence died but that when the one person of consequence did die in malchorus chicken hound there was nothing um there, there was no payoff for that at all um i needed that moment where chicken hound got to rip off his mask in front of matthias and go ha ha it was me that kidnapped your kids like we had been building up to that for the whole book and oh nope he just tripped and fell down a well like what oh, <laughs> how I, is that what we were going to and we get the natural death again and that's a theme now but still that's so it it just deflated my balloon 
Yeah, I felt the same with Vich. I really wanted a showdown between Vich and Matameo to happen because they're kind of set up as as rivals. And Vich just gets killed by Slagar. And then there's just like that felt really uh, unsatisfying because like they, they were supposed to be the opposites of each other, right? Like Slagar's taking on Vich and, you know, Matthias is trying to teach Matameo and they, you know, are, are parallels to each other. But then there's no confrontation that actually happens with it. I thought it'd be cool if Slagard takes on um, Vich and teaches him the ways of being a slaver. And then like Vich is the next villain. But uh, I mean, instead he just kills him. So this is where I come in as uh, Jake's would be developmental editor and give him some, (laughs) some postscript notes Uh, because I, I, I see what both of you are saying about like the lack of satisfaction for what happens with Slagar and what happens with Vich, uh, both of which I <laughs> I feel deflated over, but I also can kind of understand why it doesn't happen the way that we would like it to happen. And I think that part of it is that, again, this book is so tightly focused on revenge and the destructiveness of that kind of impulse. And so for me... I felt like the subversion of the big confrontation where Orlando and Matthias don't get to kill Slagar. It is Slagar's own fear, his own um, kind of, of antagonism that leads him to, to flee and then fall down this dumb well. Um, I, I felt like that was the perfect subversion of the whole revenge arc. And so if if I were Jake's developmental editor and I were to come to him and just give him some some notes on like, how can we take this ending and make it feel more satisfying? I think it would just be in a couple of additional character interactions between someone like Matameo and Vich after Matameo had, um, you know, kind of like ascended to his position as like, the 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 more mature character in this this piece because he's so tightly focused on his own revenge at the end of book one that we don't get a good sense of his maturation and i think we need that in book three that's the component that is missing is like matameo's evolution is one of the reasons why i want to kill off matthias and put matameo in his place because i want matameo to be able to sit with the weight of that kind of a loss and I, I don't think that we're given that in spite of the characters that we do lose. But I can see what Jake's is going for. I can see the kind of structural threads that this book has that leads to this denouement where, you know, like nobody gets their comeuppance from, you know, someone else seeking revenge. I, I think there's a purpose for that, a point to that. Um, and I'm not I'm not saying that it's satisfying, but I think that, I can see where Jake's was going and I'm a little bit more forgiving toward this ending because I think thematically it's more important than, you know, just the, like, I want to see Matameo tear Vich's eyes out. Like I want that moment. My feelings actually kind of match your um, logical assessment of the situation where I, in the previous books, you know, there've been these people who declare, Hey, I, you know, nobody touched this 
bad guy there i'm gonna have my moment or like it's i'm destined to have my moment with this bad guy and um and i mean this this isn't super deep but i was just kind of bored by that like i i was just kind of i i was just kind of bored by this you know like hey the you know i say i'm gonna kill the bad guy you know at the end i get this moment where i get to kill the bad guy and you know fulfill my prophecy or fulfill my word or whatever um and i i just i found that find that kind of boring um i like it when there's like a subversion or something unexpected that happens um and and so i was kind of i i actually found it kind of satisfying that they didn't get that moment because i was kind of bored of the same old like i'm gonna kill him and then i kill him um <laughs> resolution yeah you're talking about like book. like M- madameo's promise where he says like slagger i'm gonna kill you i mean t- mark my word well now. so M- matthias and orlando both say that too um and oh, so that true. was yeah they they all say it they all say i'm gonna have my moment where i kill him you know and in previous and books, those characters moment. have gotten that moment um and i was just kind of bored of it i i was excited to see something new yeah, it's a good point because I didn't see the end. I I didn't see the ending happen like it happened. I will say that I, that's kind of a positive is that that subversion of of expectations that Jake's lays out. I do think is a positive to this book. I don't particularly dislike the ending. Like, um, what I don't like is the matter of convenience with Strike and General Ironbeak. That's my hot take. Is that it? Just seemed like this whole subplot that happens happens so quickly and is resolved so quickly, and there's a lot of middling in between with like the armor. Like I would have loved to see. Um, like I wanted them to talk more about like the mysticism is what I called it of like why the um, mangas can't see the future because of um, Martin, because of the spirit of Martin. Like those are the things that I thought were way more interesting. And instead we just have these little character moments that happen. It's almost like Jake's had so many ideas for this that we're all chasing these threads of these ideas that he had, but then like none of those play out in this book. My hope is that we could just see those ideas develop further, kind of like what we saw with Redwall. I mean, the first Redwall book has a lot of ideas that get kind of like uh, uh, built upon and, uh, the last two books. Um, I, so that's why that's my hot take is that I just didn't think general iron beak was that compelling of a villain, but then also hit it, it just resolved in the same, you know, just kind of random. It, I think that the well, <laughs> the well's random too, but I, I, I was more satisfied with Slagar's ending with kind of what Trevor's talking about where it's this subversion of revenge. And it's like, well, revenge isn't really the answer kind of a thing. Um, but then with general iron beak, it's just like, he comes in, he ruffles everyone's feathers. They're in this holdout for a long time during the summertime. And then they rehabilitate a hawk that kills him. And it's just like, Oh, okay, well that was good. I'm glad that happened. The one thing that I do like about that um, plot line though, is that I do think it is a really good point that when you send all of your warriors off, then you leave the Abbey, um, you know, really weak. And so I do like the idea of having something come in and take advantage of the fact that the Abbey is weak now. Cause I do think, you know, from like a battle perspective, that's really interesting. Um, but I guess I do agree that the pacing of it was weird and, um, definitely could have done a lot more with it but the fact that he tried i i do think is really interesting yeah it's like a uh, the, the merit of it yeah yeah 
William, you haven't chimed in yet on the Iron Beak stuff. Like, what what was your take about this secondary villain and this secondary plotline? Okay, cool. Um, so my take on Iron Beak, um, and I get all of the criticisms of him, and I don't think that anything that he does specifically is that interesting, um, other than giving Constance opportunities to just be, like, cold-blooded um john wick of the abbey for a little bit um <laughs> but uh what i what i thought iron beak really did to elevate the story was what tiff just referenced with he made the threat of the sparrows leaving really poignant in a in a world where that wasn't something that had ever been considered before. The Red Wallers never ever thought, well, we need to keep the sparrows up in the attic because otherwise more birds might come to us. It's just this unexpected consequence of this whole plot line of finding the map to Lome Hedge, which ultimately that too, totally inconsequential. There was no reason to go down that. <laughs> whole mystery hole other than just getting the sparrows out of the attic but as soon as they did that as soon as they kind of overextended themselves this vile threat swoops in and starts literally picking their babies off in the stairs also um i think it lends a lot of credibility to the idea of Redwall itself, this concept that all of these uh, creatures need to live together in harmony. Everybody has something to add, even if you don't really know what that creature's value add is in the beginning. Um, go back to Redwall, the sparrows in the attic were just a nuisance. Um, they, they were pests that nobody really liked and the sparrows didn't like the creatures, but they still had this little symbiotic relationship. Between Redwall and this book, we get to see that relationship flourish until they go out to try to help. And then in this vacuum, we, we, rec we recognize the dangers now. Um, and I think that adds a lot of value also to just Warbeak in general. But I'm going to, I keep trying to save Warbeak for when we talk about the heroes specifically, because I am throwing her in that ring. <laughs> I'm with you. I mean, like Warbeak is so, so great um, as an inclusion. And I, I love that Jake's kind of brings this back. I have a bit more forgiveness, I think, for the loam hedge elements um, and, and the whole um, Abistermain kind of side plot in book one, because I, I think that there is kind of a thematic unity of Malchris being the old loam hedge, you know, kind of just repurposed underground for this very selfish creature of Malchris. And and so I I feel like as much as it's clunky a little bit, it does play into this I think again, this subversion, this inversion of the Redwall society that we see in Malchris. I found that to be deeply satisfying to me. I loved the fact that Jake's used his own lore um, to kind of create this like terrible and terrifying place outside of Mossflower um, that, that was a real source of menace through the entire book. I felt like 
as much as in the moment I was kind of like, all right, wh- where are we going with this Abbas Germain stuff? Thematically, it tied in really strongly with the other ideas that the book is exploring about Redwall as a society and where it sits in comparison to other societies outside of Mossflower. I'm going to go back to um, the conclusion of all of the bird stuff for a minute um, and just say that I some another thing that I expected to happen that didn't happen was um, I thought that we were setting it up so that Harry the owl um, and Strike would both live in the attic at the same time and that basically Strike would have daytime watch and be like the protector during the daytime and that Harry would be the protector during the nighttime and that they would be friends. Um, oh, that's so smart. I love that. Yeah, that's that's what I thought because, um, you know, like you, uh, Will, William, like you were saying how the birds have this place, you know, it was really pointed out in this book how the birds have this place in the abbey um and their protectors and so now that we didn't have um the same sparrow army i thought that those two were going to get to come in and um take over and so i was kind of surprised by the ending with the birds because of that i yeah i gotta chime in and say that sir harry the muse and basil is just one of the funniest moments as well like uh, basically my pro is always going to be Basil, but their interaction and how like Basil doesn't like Sir Harry because he eats all the food and Sir Harry doesn't like Basil because he thinks he's a really bad poet is, is great. Their the character interactions are just awesome. I'm a stand for Sir Harry all day. Like I think he's one of my favorite newcomers to this story. And I think Basil's interactions with him just further serve <laughs> to like make me love Harry more and also love Basil more. I, I love it because I don't think there's a lot of other examples of the heroes getting on each other's nerves. Um, it, it's this very utopian, like everybody loves everybody up until this point. And Sir Harry and Basil are the first two characters that were like, I, they genuinely don't like each other. They're on the same team. They're going to keep working together because that's what needs to happen. Um, and they they understand that they're both good guys, but they're, they're going to grind each other's gears every second that they get. I know that Colin brought up the question about the new characters, but I want to bring up a question about this older cast because we've kind of talked around some of these characters, but it's been uh, a book in between, you know, Madame Mayo and Redwall. And now we are able to return to these characters who are apparently eight seasons uh, older. So, in in the wake of the kind of leveling up that Jake's does with his prose and with his story structure in Redwall, how do you feel about the returning cast in Madame Mayo? Do you feel like there was any change in your appreciation for any characters? Do you feel like there was one character who changed the most for you in a surprising way? I'll kick it off with um, with Logalog. I mean, I think Logalog's character development between this and what we saw him in Redwall is just complete nine day difference. He's so much more of a leader of the Shrews, and he really kind of does um, 
he, he does a lot of things that a leader should be like his, his priority, even in his own death is to fulfill his promise and also to uh, appoint a successor. Um, he directly challenges scan and they even Jake's even mentions that he's smaller than scan and scans younger and healthier and stronger than he is. Um, but, uh, Logalog's a, a fierce leader and, and a warrior and because of that, um, he demands a lot of respect from the, re- the rest of the Gaussum. So I think I think he's just, you can tell uh, there's just a lot of, um, there's a big difference between the log log that we saw in Redwall versus this one. And um, I didn't, if you asked me in red in the first Redwall if I would have been sad about log log dying, I'd be like, no, not really. But when he died in this book, it definitely, you know, got to me a little bit because I was like, dang, man, I was really starting to like him and I was really starting to like his story and i think his death was um helped to serve his character a lot more too so during um after redwall we all complained a lot about cornflower's character and i i know i at least also really complained about some of the moments with matthias where um he was like it felt like he was awkward with some of the way that he interacted with some of the other creatures that he was just you know meeting for the first time um and the growth in those characters, I actually just chalk up to Jake's becoming a better writer over the last two books. Um, I felt like Cornflower was such a better, like more well-rounded character. Matthias, I felt like the all of his leadership qualities were natural in this book and felt earned. Um, and so I, I really liked those characters, like all the qualms that I had in Redwall about Matthias and Cornflower. I did not at all have any of those qualms. Um, and I just, yeah, I just felt like it was because Jake's is a better writer in, in this third book. Yeah. I, I think Cornflower has a lot more like poignant moments in this book too. Like she, in the first book, she just seems really, um, she's there in a, in a, to serve a purpose, but is also her appearance is really convenient, but her coming up with this idea of donning the armor, risking herself in order to try to scare the um, Corvid group like I think those are all big leaps for her as a character and even the moment that she talks with with Abbott Mortimer um, or sorry Mordalvis who says like you gotta knock this off like and she's like well you know I need to be uh, I need to defend my home and his response is yeah but you're you know Matthias is out there expecting that you're gonna be safe so <laughs> you know like I have a, an obligation to him as well I just thought that was such a cool moment between the two of them because um, which is, I don't think we would have seen a Redwall, right? Like you're totally right in Jake's level up in writing. We wouldn't have seen something like that. Yeah, uh, I've got I've got three in mind. Uh, two very quick. Uh, first, not so silent Sam is probably the most surprising development because I still don't understand why that developed. Um, I'm I'm kind of frustrated that I don't know more about silent Sam's development. Um, number two, Jess Squirrel um in redwall we saw her being like one of the leaders but like a soft-spoken leader like a lead by example sort of a character where oh okay we've got a problem we've got to go up to the top of the abbey and catch this thing let me grab my climbing gear i'll go do it in this one she took on a much more active role there were times in the pursuit of slagar that she was telling matthias no this is a bad idea we need to do this instead 
Um, so seeing that, and that felt like a very natural development too. Like she's been around Redwall more now, so she feels more comfortable taking charge of these things. I just thought her whole development was really well done. Yeah, Matthias um, gives her his sword when they yeah. are in the forest, which is another really cool moment too. Yeah, against the painted ones, which I love. Um, but then last one for me is Slagar himself. Um, I I feel kind of weird giving the villain props, especially a villain as heinous as this one, but it is genuinely cool to see a villain that we already have some backstory for. Uh, Clooney was dastardly and horrible, and we wanted to see him defeated. And uh, Sarmina was also, you know, this really awful villain that needed to be defeated, but we didn't have a lot of buildup to them. When Slagar reveals who he is, that was a like breath catch in my chest for a second sort of a moment. One, because I love it so much. It's again, going back to the horror tropes, he didn't die on screen, so he's not dead. Um, just like having Jake's whip one of those out was like, yes, I love this. Here we are. I feel so at home in this moment. Um, but then also understanding his motivation and understanding how he's certifiably insane. Um, and we're not positive the extent to it. We don't know if he truly believes that lie that he tells to Madame Ayo about how he escaped and was pursued by the Red Wallers and all the tortures that he thinks they inflicted upon them. We don't know how much of that he believes. We don't know how much of that is just a story he's telling to try to corrupt Matameo. We don't, we don't know how out of this spiral he is. We just know that he is finally, finally a capable Fox villain. Yes, all of those like <laughs> evil, cunning stereotypes, they're, they're finally coming to roost in somebody. And we know that he is so motivated to follow this plan through. There's not going to be a moment like Clooney could have had where at any moment Clooney could have stopped and been like, you know what? Not worth it. I'm leaving. Um, yeah, he he literally waltzes into Redwall. Like the whole first book is about Clooney trying to get into Redwall and Slagar does it with ease. <laughs> like it's yeah. really crazy. Uh, yeah. I just, I don't know. I love it. I will so say <laughs> that... Uh, when we were first introduced to Slagar, Chicken Hound, um, I was actually, I was at first really unsatisfied by that backstory because I was like, how could he possibly twist it? <laughs> like, how could it, it have gotten so twisted in his head that he thinks that Redwall is his enemy and like Redwall did more bad to him than Clooney did? I didn't really like, I, I was really, really unsatisfied by that at the beginning. And then when he finally did explain, you know, I had actually forgotten that his ending was um, from the snake and that he, you know, got the poison in him. And when they explained that it kind of messed with his head with the poison and everything, I kind of eventually did accept it and, you know, forgot about it and wasn't bothered by it by the rest of the book. But at first I was like, I was like, hey, there's no way, like, this is not realistic that he would have gotten it so twisted in his head to, like, convince himself that Redwall is way more of an enemy than, like, all the other people that caused his demise. And his mom's I, demise. Yeah, I absolutely love the idea that the reason why he has this twisted in his head is that it's Asmodeus's um, 
poison that is literally poisoning his mind like it's decaying his mind i think that that's such a cool like plot point that i was so on board with when that was revealed it feels like a continuation of where we left off in Moss Flower because we saw Sarmina starting to lose her mind and there was all this potential danger there with, like, okay, what's going to happen when she finally like really cracks? And then we don't really get to see the payoff from that in Moss Flower. We get it here. Um, I, yeah, yeah. I'm going to challenge that though. Like, do we really get it? Because to me, it felt like the main way that he lost his mind was by thinking like there is was by picking the wrong enemy but like other than that was he really all that crazy like he was actually a fairly good villain a fairly good leader other than that and so to me it didn't really feel that realistic that he was made crazy by this poison when that's the only way that he was made crazy i'm i'm gonna chime in because i i I have some thoughts about chicken hound and and his transformation into slagar i think the thing that you have to understand about chicken hound is that he thinks of himself as the main character he thinks of himself as like the hero of his story he thinks of himself as the most brilliant in any room and he refuses to accept when there is some kind of of uh malformation in his thoughts you know he does have a warped view of the world even in redwall where you know his mother tries to protect him and she dies in doing so and he kind of is like well that's her fault because she was just dumb you know she didn't get it right he's kind of incapable of processing the world as if the world you know like like he really experienced reality i think his entire perception of the world is warped like a kind of psychopathy and and this is why i buy chicken hound and his kind of devolution into building up redwall as this great and horrible villain and why he seems to be so cool with like i'm gonna (laughs) trade slaves over in malchorus now I, I think it's because he has this singular pursuit of power and he really does think of himself as being incapable of committing any wrong. And so if something bad happened to him, it's not because he made the wrong choice. It's because the world must have conspired against his greatness. Or if there's a magical sword that is willing against him uh, that he points out with rat death uh, or matthias's sword at the very end he's like i needed a symbol i need to get matthias's sword that's the thing i'm missing right i think going along with that trevor too he needed an enemy he needed to be the victim and Clooney is not alive anymore so he didn't have that uh so he needed something else to fill that void in his mind And, and redwall ended up filling that void yeah he even complains about the fact that you know, he he has nobody to strike out against, right? Like Clooney's gone. Matthias even took his ability to get revenge on Asmodeus for disfiguring him, which figures into his feeling of Matthias as this, like a kind of uh, uh, overbearing brute, right? And one of the reasons why he wants revenge is because like you stole even revenge from me, Matthias. 
Yeah, I love that you point that out. I'm kind of surprised we've gone this long without like talking about Slagar as like the he 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 really is uh, kind of the rivet to a lot of the things that are going on in this book. Um, I I think that him as a character, which we can uh, do our character ratings here in a bit, but I think him as a character is the most compelling villain that we've had. Like because there's a lot of history that's there. He has a lot of motivation for for what he's doing. He's working under Malchorus, but at the same time, he has complete plans to change that in the future. Right? Like even even him taking on Vich is really to his own needs. Like there's just a lot of things that he does as a villain that I think is different than Sarmina and what we saw with Clooney that makes him a very strong. Um, presence in this book. I think if I think back on this book, it's going to be all about Slagar. Okay, I want to I want to float an idea here. I'm going to be our I'm going to be our conspiracy theory guy uh, for the show. I guess uh, we've got Martin was buried in the Gloomers Cave, and I've got a new one here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know so, what? I, I'm gonna I'm just gonna say I I did start Mariel of of Redwall. Um, and, and the map in that book pretty clearly illustrates that Redwall is built on the foundation of Cotier. So I'm, I'm going to join William's William's side here a little bit. I refuse. I refuse this. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So Trevor's comment about how chicken hound perspective on the world was corrupt even before the venom got into him had me thinking do we actually have a point where we know asmodeus got chicken hound and we don't um chicken hound tells madameo that asmodeus bit him um while he's villain monologuing and just spurting off lie after lie after lie to madameo anyhow so I, I was thinking, okay, going back to Redwall, was there a point in Redwall in that little tunnel where Jake's told us that Chicken Hound got bit by Asmodeus even, and there's not. Chicken Hound goes into the darkness and puts his treasures behind him, and he's hiding there in the depths, and he reaches back for his treasures again and feels something that's not his treasures, Asmodeus. He hears Asmodeus say his name, and then scene cut, we're on to something else. We never see this guy get bitten. So my new conspiracy theory is Chicken Hound didn't actually get bit by Asmodeus because that would have killed him because it kills everybody. I think Chicken Hound's just this evil because those sort of toxins going through your brain, it wouldn't just turn off your sense of good and evil. It would dissolve your brain and he wouldn't have been able to put together all these different plots or do all of these different schemes that he had if his brain is boiling. I, so I think Chicken Hound got away from Asmodeus. His face is mangled from something else. And this is just part of the dramatic story he is selling to Matameo. Let's go. I, I was going to say, I need to know what you, uh, in this as part of this conspiracy theory, what caused his face to be mangled like did he do it himself you know like was he such a psychopath that he like he needed to have this like physical manifestation of his like you're about to get so many angry letters from like fans on instagram william's putting this out they're not realizing that our instagrams (laughs) is going to get slammed with 
but he takes on he, he's clearly been in like evil businesses since he got away he got connected to malchorus somehow he's been a slaver for long enough to build up a reputation for it he's had adventures outside of this so we don't like maybe maybe his face got melted off in a fit of corn flowery rage i don't know <laughs> he got, uh, he's cooking some bacon got too too close to the fryer and uh but i the, the more i'm thinking about this the more i'm kind of with tiffany and that i don't i don't know if that original explanation actually makes sense held under scrutiny yeah the main the main reason why yeah the main reason why <laughs> it didn't feel satisfying to me is what we touched on earlier where he didn't seem insane in any other way except i'm gonna have to go blow my nose a minute um he didn't seem insane in any other way except for the fact that redwall shouldn't actually be as big of an enemy as he makes it out to be um because um was it guinevere what was her name the the other one that you mentioned that went insane in the last um sarmina sarmina Sarmina. oh my gosh wow i think her dad's name was like (laughs) gingivere and i got that's where i got that from anyway (laughs) so when sarmina went crazy you saw that in her like tactical decisions like you saw her start to make bad decisions and start to run away in places where like in the beginning of the book maybe she wouldn't have run away um and you don't we didn't get that from slagar um and and so that's why i just it just didn't really feel like it added up to me yeah i kind of also thought that um the reason why chicken hound survives is because sila is like that good of a healer that he had picked up um enough craft from her to save himself like i thought that it kind of played a little bit more into her importance in redwall um i am 100 percent not picking up your take william <laughs> on on the poison i can see where you're coming <laughs> from for sure but i think it's so i think it's too cool of a plot point to have the poison be like from uh asmodeus or asmodeus however you say it um to be just warping his mind into his reality um and that's why he's so cruel like i think that that's such a cool special thing um uh kind of calling in, in reference to to redwall um that i like that take yeah my take <laughs> can respect your take but i like my take better yeah. i i think i i think for me i i love i love slagar as a villain so much <laughs> and i think what i love is that um you know i buy into the story that asmodeus bit him I, I buy into the story that uh, Slagar, you know, has kind of this warped perception. I think the question that that I would pose, my conspiracy theory, is just the question of whether or not Slagar actually believes the story that he's telling. I wonder how much of that is just him projecting something as a justification for what he's doing. Or how much of that is really like he really is toxically warped uh, from this poison that it, it has so dramatically changed his perception of the world. I think either way works for me in a way that doesn't make me feel like this character diminishes at all. I I love 
whatever the story is, whether he's really just that maniacally evil or if he's just the tragic result of really bad circumstance, it doesn't really matter to me uh, because at the end of the day, I feel like Slagar's a wonderful villain and one of the best, I think, of the series so far. Yeah, I think that's a really great segue into our last section, which is the the character reviews. So let's take a quick break and then let's jump right back into it. All right, and we're back. Uh, let's jump into our character discussion. Uh, we just talked a lot about Slagar, so I feel like it would be good to probably start with talking about our two uh, heroes for this book. Uh, we have Matameo, and we also have Matthias. Uh, we kind of get Matthias. Slander. <laughs> we kind of get <laughs> Matthias back again as one of the main heroes. Um, and so I'd love to hear what your take is on him in this book compared to what we saw in Redwall. Um, we kind of did the same thing with Martin, too. Um, you know, in, Ma- in Mossflower, we, we kind of compared Martin to Redwall. But um, okay. Uh, so, Trevor, you want to you wanna kick us off? Sure. I rate Matameo as a seven and Matthias as an eight in this book. Um, This is kind of a weird take because, you know, my first take on Matthias was that he's a 10, you know, he's kind of the archetype for so many of the different mice heroes going forward. And I, I think that's still true here, but now that we've seen, Matthias in Redwall. Now that we've seen Martin the Warrior, we've seen Gonf from Mossflower. I felt like returning to Matthias in this book uh, diminished his character just a little bit. I love the evolution that we see in some ways. I think that Matthias is just as dumb as any other time at parts in this book, too, especially that running into that trap. It was just such an idiotic decision. Um, but I also feel like Matameo does not do enough to really rise to the occasion of like the warrior mouse. I wanted way more Matameo in this book. And I feel like we only get it in part one and we don't really get it in other parts. So it, it felt to me like a bit of a missed opportunity. Neither of these characters really stood out in a very crowded field of other characters for me. And as a result, I just didn't feel that they were as compelling or as uh, attention capturing as we've seen some of these main characters be in previous books. You know, if you ask me who the star of this book is, I'm still going to say it's like either Orlando or it's Basil. Um and even though it's supposed to be a father-son kind of, of dynamic, I felt like they were the least interesting of the major characters. Good thoughts. Uh, how about you, William? I don't have anything to add to that, actually. Trevor just nailed it. Um, I do think in Matthias, we got a more consistent character this time around. Um, so I'm going to give him a little bit of props for that. He doesn't fluctuate between um, hapless youngling whose shoes don't fit into seasoned war general. Like he doesn't flip flop back and forth between that as much. Um, but still, it's he's not 
he's still not anything that should be described as consistent. Um, he, he's still a little bit all over the place. Um, and Matameo, I feel like we saw chapter one of his book. Um, we, we saw him get kidnapped. We saw some inciting incident for his growth, but we haven't actually seen that growth yet, except for one time where he stands up to Slagar and says, I'm going to kill you eventually. And Tess in the background goes, oh my goodness, he's growing now. Um, other than that, we didn't, we haven't seen him yet. Uh, so I'm a little disappointed in those two heroes for this book. Well said. Yeah, it's, uh, um, <laughs> I think you, you, you nailed a lot of thoughts that I had, but, um, Tiff, how about you? I'm thinking about how Lagar himself made the point that, there isn't really one he doesn't have one enemy within Redwall. Um and and there isn't really one hero in the book. Um it's really very shared. It's almost like the Redwall band as a crew are all the hero. Um and so I I I didn't even really feel like um well, first of all, with Matameo, I gave him a six. Um, you know, he he didn't really have many opportunities to step up as a hero. Um, he was still very young and just really getting into, you know, um, getting to know himself. And yeah, Matthias, I mean, he did everything that I expected him to do. He was a great leader, um, but it was very much shared. Um, and so Matameo, I gave him a six. Matthias, I gave him an eight. Um which Matthias, I mean, that's still a pretty high score in eight, I feel like, because um, he, he was good, you know, and he did everything I expected him to do. But um, it was definitely, it was it was all very shared, all of the glory, all of the, um, you know, the heroes were, it was almost like Redwall, the group was the hero rather than any any one or two people. Yeah, we definitely debated throwing Orlando on this list since we had Denny and Gomf on the last list. But in that same vein, we would have to throw the whole crew like Jess would be on there. And so in order just to kind of pare it down, we were focusing on Matameo and Matthias. Yeah. Um, I rated Matthias or sorry, Matameo the, the lowest out of all of us. I gave him a five. Um, purely because I, I mean, I think that this being the book named after him, that he being the kind of uh, big focus for a lot of the plot, we just don't get a lot of Matameo. Like we, we just don't really see a lot um, of character development from him. I would definitely read another book with Matameo um, and would like to see a lot more of him, um, but we just don't get as much from him. And I kind of think about like, you know, in Redwall, when we have Matthias, Matthias is the main character. Um, and so he's kind of uh, taking the, the full stage yet again in this book. Um, I really like Matthias in the, this book. I think he's better in this book than Redwall. So I put him as an eight. Um, just for reference, I put um, Matthias as a seven in Redwall. Um, besides him being really dumb and running into a cave, he just has a lot of uh, better uh, leadership moments. Um, he seems really um, patient a lot of the times um, and then is is brave when he needs to be too. Um, so I, I really liked him a lot. I He's definitely grown a lot more as a character. I don't know if I like him as much as 
Martin the Warrior, but um, definitely we're seeing more of a blend. I, I, we didn't really talk about this previously, but the kind of full circleness of uh, Martin to Matthias to Matameo to Martin, um, I think is such a cool cycle. And the blending of Matthias becoming more like Martin, I think is a really cool idea um, in, in this world of Redwall. And so um, I would just want to see uh, Matameo take on more of that. Like I wanted to see him be more like Matthias, like Matthias is becoming more like Martin. Um, so that puts uh, Matameo at an average of 6.25 and Matthias an average of eight in that hero discussion. Before we transition over to the villains, I do just want to pitch it to all four of us. You know, is there an MVP of this book? Maybe not a main character, but is there one character that like this was the standout for you? The the one that you really would like to have seen, you know, either carry over or was just like the highlight character for you? I'm grinning like an idiot because I think you just set this up for me. Um, far and away, um, everybody that's seen our group chat, it's Warbeak. I am, for every negative thing I've had to say about any other character in the last three books, Warbeak is everything that this book series aims to deliver. And I want to get on my soapbox and defend this for a minute. Warbeak goes from in Redwall potentially being a villain. She gets shot by an arrow by the Redwallers, lands, and is swearing vengeance upon them left and right. I am going to kill all of you is basically the only thing she's saying as Matthias captures her and binds her up and starts climbing up into the red wall attic with her like as a hostage she has the best villain story villain origin story out of anybody we've seen so far cheese thief include not cheese thief sorry chicken hound included she's got just as much motivation as him to come back down and to tear these red wallers apart and yet she befriends matthias she befriends Redwall Ab Abbey. She becomes the queen of the sparrows and turns their entire civilization around from just being these almost parasitic things living in the attic um, into being a valuable fighting force that defends by deterrence even just through existing in the attic. In the beginning of this book, we see how well that species of creatures has integrated themselves into Redwall Abbey, and they have formed this counterpoint to the end of Mossflower, where uh, the Corim take all of the weasels and the stoats and the rats that had been uh, working with Sarmina, and they cast them out forever, and they banish them. If you come back here, we're going to kill you. The sparrows could have gone the same way, but they have shown through Warbeak this willingness to participate and to take part in what the the red wallers are trying to grow here that they become ingratiated with everything else to the point that when they find a entirely pointless map that the main characters do not need to get to a place that they are already going to with hints and riddles about dangers that they're not going to interpret in time to help them warbeak doesn't 
bat an eye about it. She just says, yeah, sure. Give me that. If it's going to, if anybody thinks it's going to help the group, we're in, they fly off, find them in the battle for their lives about to be overrun. And this is going to be it for Matthias, for all the kids that got captured for Redwall back at home. Cause they're going to get picked up by Ironbeak, and without hesitation, throws herself into the fray, sacrifices herself to save the person that she had sworn to kill in book one, dies leaving her entire civilization in a better place than she had found it because she has made these bridges with the Redwallers. It's just, it is everything that the Quorum wanted Redwall to be when they founded it personified and she is my queen forever and we have joked about if we get through all of these episodes we are going to get a tattoo warbeak is my tattoo like build the statue (laughs) that's incredible yeah and i I, to kind of add on to that it's such a cool moment at the very end of the book that they name um they named the roost uh warbeak loft because if before it was king bullsparrow's court you know like it was a court of madness. It was a place where the, the birds were crazy. And instead, um, it's it's completely transformed. So well said, William. I'm applauding you um, quietly so I don't get it on mic. But um, 200 out of 10. Put her at the top of the rankings. <laughs> <laughs> Just blows out the Excel sheet uh, with all the rankings. Yeah, very well said. Also, on that same note, um, you guys need to like text me and check in if uh, if basil dies like if we we get to the book that if basil dies you guys need to like you need to check up on me because i'm not for seven books from now no (laughs) yeah again i don't know if this happens because i haven't read this series and i i will you know not spoil i don't want to see any spoilers but i i can't i think basil might be my favorite character of all time like i'm not i'm not even joking he's i just love basil so much he's incredible Um, Okay, that's enough about me gushing about Basil, which happens every episode, every <laughs> recording we do. Uh, no, no more of that. Let's talk about the villains. So we have well, the oh, well, we got we've got two more people to give their their side MVPs. <laughs> so, so we've got Warbeak, we've got Basil, Trevor, and Tiff. Who were your side character MVPs? I it's it's lo- I named myself Logalog for this recording because it's it's Logalog um for for me anyway I love Logalog's story arc in this story uh we've talked about it in the, the previous episodes but um pour one out for Logalog I feel like you know we come in and he's like he's on the stump for re-election <laughs> he's like you know just trying to manage all of this stuff going on with the Gaussim. And then he's like, yeah, but uh, Redwall needs you. And he's like, well, if Gondor calls for aid, you know, <laughs> he just kind of charges in. And, uh, and, and every time he's there to show up, like Logalog brings the thunder to the very last moment when he's the one to find the kids and kind of be like, I've, I've completed my mission. Right. Like I came to find these kids and free them. And I've done that. And and that's kind of the capstone to his legacy. Um, I, I just absolutely loved 
every little bit of log log in this book the the evolution of that character from what we see in redwall i feel like to your point william um he is my warbeak in this book uh i feel exactly what you say about warbeak i 100 percent believe in you um and believe that argument that you've made but i would also just like pair that with Logalog and be like, look at this legacy character as well, you know, standing up for all that Redwall really stands for and showing that like even the Gaussim who have ostensibly their own society understands the utopian vision of Redwall and are willing to put their lives on the line even when they don't have a stake in that fight at all. Uh, simply because they understand the importance of that connection. I, I love Logalog for the same reason. I want to jump in here real quick before Tiff goes, just to kind of throw out this observation. It's weird that we're having such strong, positive reactions to Logalog and Warbeak, but when we were talking about Matthias and Matameo, who are supposed to be the poster children for Redwall, it's much more lukewarm of a, yeah, I mean, they're fine. They're doing okay. Um, but it's it's really these other like commoners that are the ones doing the heavy lifting of like, no, this is what Redwall is really about. I'm going to have so many thoughts about that in future episodes. Like, just hang on to it. <laughs> I think a character that um, stands out in my mind, which she... So it's Tess and um, and Tess actually, this is more actually from the beginning of the book um, when they were first cap, well, when they were still in the Abbey and then when they were first captured, um, there was less characters. So there was a little bit more of a focus on Tess. And I just remember thinking how one refreshing it was because I knew that, you know, obviously Tess was going to be fated to marry Matameo and that that was going to be part of her role. Um, and, you know, having been so disappointed by Cornflower and Redwall and how, you know, little character there was and how she was just this silly girl, you know, just taking care of the kids and everything. Um, I was really excited about how you know how strong Tess was and how there was no focus there was almost no focus on like their relationship as far as like a couple goes you know she was her own standalone character um but also Matameo you know purposefully at the beginning of the book was really annoying you know he was this little punk who was just getting away with stuff and not having to work and feeling entitled and because everyone was letting him get away with it and he had to you know it was his destiny to go through this arc of like having these moments that you know where he struggles and he comes out the other end a warrior but i really felt like as far as raw material goes tess is like a better warrior because she had this like she had leadership you know she, she was really good as a leader she was um a really brave you know just without thinking putting yourself out there and being strong and um you know being a voice of reason and 
I just felt like raw material wise, she was almost a better warrior than Matameo was, but it was always going to be his journey to become the warrior. And so if, you know, we could see a story with the two of them in the future where they, they're more on equal footing and she's almost thought of as a warrior as well. I just think that would be super interesting. Um, and that she would make a really great, strong warrior as well. Yeah, I absolutely love that that um, perspective because I, I really do think that she has a lot more intuition and, and is more mature than, than Madame Ayo is with their given situation. She has way more of a calm head, but then also um, has a lot more um, drive than Madame Ayo does until he sees Matthias in the cave when he thinks he's dead. Like that kind of changes Madame Ayo a bit. Prior to that, he's like, ah, you know, we're going to get saved. Everything's going to be fine. And she's like, well, I can't really bank on that. <laughs> like we need yeah. to get out of the situation ourselves. So that's a great, great point. I'm really glad that you brought that up. Um, well, for the sake of time, um, let's move over to our villains list. Um, we've said a lot about Slagar, who's obviously on this list. And then we also have our secondary villain, uh, General Ironbeak. Um, Tiff, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, so sorry, my uh, spreadsheet was mixed up. Yeah, so I gave um, Slagar an eight and Ironbeak a five. Um, so Slagar, I, I, I think, you know, it, it, to spoil it a little bit, it looks like you guys all gave him nines. Um, and I think all the things that I, you guys liked about him, I think I also liked, um, but again, his origin story, I just didn't find it as believable. I just didn't find it as satisfying. So I knocked it down one for that. But I mean, I, I did really like him and he is, you know, definitely one of the biggest, if not the biggest character in the book. Um, and then Iron Beak, I gave a five <laughs> for all the reasons we've talked about. He's just boring, um, not that smart, you know, just not much there. All right. Uh, Trevor, how about you? I'm almost uh, exactly with you, Tiff. I feel like Slagar, for me, was just such a phenomenal villain in so many ways. I rated him a 9 as opposed to a 10. I I feel like I'm almost leaning towards a 10 because I, I feel like he really is one of the most compelling villains of the whole series. When I think of the series, I certainly think of Slagar right up there with Clooney. Um, I think the only characters that I remember as strongly as those two are the Marl Foxes, which we'll get to like way later on. But Slagar is such a fantastic villain for so many different reasons. I think the only thing that hedges him from being like a 10 for me is um, just that he is like at the bidding of Malchorus. And I felt like Malchorus is a weird villain to begin with. He's kind of, I, I don't know, ethereal. Um, we don't get a good sense of who Malchorus is until like the very end of the book. And I felt like that just detracted a little bit from Slagar's agency over, you know, his own villainy. Um, it's the only reason why I kind of dock my point. General Ironbeak, though, I felt was just kind of there. He was kind of boring one note. 
he does the stuff that you expect a secondary villain to do. Um, there are some moments when I think that he is actually maybe a little better than I'm giving him credit for. Like I love the manga's kind of angle and like his superstition. I wish that there were more foundation for that because as even as he's being superstitious, he's also like trying to be very realist. Um, so I felt like that was just a contradiction. I felt like, you know, you can't really have the superstitious rooks who are, you know, so afraid of ghosts or whatever. And general iron beaks, like there's no such thing as a ghost, but then he's also so reliant on a seer to like, see the future for him. It was just too conflictory. And I found his parts of the book to be the most boring parts of the book. Um, I think Colin will, will have some, <laughs> some criticisms too. Um, but I, I just felt like, I don't know, what is he even really doing here in this book? He's so quickly introduced and then he's just as quickly undone at the end. Um, he just left a very unsatisfactory arc for me. Yeah, I'll jump in with, with my thoughts uh, since you kind of threw it over to me, Trev. Um, with, with Slagar the Cruel, I think he's such a cool character for all the reasons that we talked about earlier. Um, that I really think he's on par with Clooney. Like, if I think back on this book, I'm going to be thinking about Slagar. Um, besides his very goofy look on the cover of the book, um, he's just a really cool character, and I really like him a lot. <laughs> William, you got some thoughts on the cover of the book? <laughs> I, yeah, okay, derailing the villain's conversation for 10 seconds. What is going on with this cover? Every other Redwall cover has these really cool paintings of mice and squirrels and badgers in these animated battle positions. They look like fantasy covers where that mouse could come out of that, that page and like at least slash my ankles up and like he would do battle for a second. This would be cool. This cover is the only one in the entire series where, yeah, that's a picture of a mouse. Um, and they like painted some gray shackles on him. So it looks a little bit in theme with what's going on in the story. And there's a, there's a four-legged fox standing in the background with a like poorly painted mask on him too. So yeah, you know, there's that. I think there's a squirrel that's sort of kind of holding a spear. And that's the only thing in line with all the rest of the books. Why did the quality dip so much on this one? Sorry, shutting up. No, you're you're totally right. It it is very bizarre, especially because they're like all on all fours, but then you have a weasel that has like a spear <laughs> that's on the cover. It kind uh, of yeah. It, it kind of matches though with what we've been talking about. About you know, I mean, I guess the cover could have been Matameo, but when you read the book, that would have been kind of confusing because Matameo isn't like the main hero in the book, um, and so I don't know. It kind of matches the book where it's kind of all over the place. Yeah, but it's, yeah. So good then, maybe we could have gone a Legend of Luke direction then, where they've got like the shipwreck on the cover, and that's still like something like intriguing, and it draws you in and makes you want to read it. Um, yeah, with this cover discussion, I think they should have just done the polecat of Malchus in in like a dark cave. They should have just done that, and because it's it kind of fits the creepy vibe of the book, and um, I would have been cool with it. All right, to all right to. Uh, who is this? Uh, Firebird Fantasy. Give him some some notes. 
<laughs> from our podcast. Uh, but back to the villain discussion. I love Slagar. I think he's a great villain. I put him on the same level as Clooney, uh, a nine. Um, I think he's memorable. I would read a whole nother book with him. Um, the only reason why he's not getting a 10 is because he dies in a dumb way. But other than that, um, I really, really like him as a character. Um, but then General Ironbeak is the complete opposite. I rated him a four. This is the lowest out of any character that I've rated, purely because he kind of shows up in the middle of nowhere. Bane did that in Mossflower, but I think that he had a way cooler um, kind of battle with Aguilar and his him, him popping into the story. I, I feel like served the story better than General Ironbeak does. I'm totally with Trevor that all the surrounding Corvids are way cooler than general iron beak like i think mangas uh, was would be rated higher than him being a seer and kind of tapping into this magic and um yeah i just i just did not really care like i i won't remember him in two in two books and um i really just think that uh there's there's better villains out there than him or more more interesting villains out there i think scan is a cooler character to to be ranking than general iron beak you know like there's and he's only on there for two paragraphs and then he gets killed in the forest but like you know i'll remember that more than more than him all right i've bashed enough on on them uh what do you what are your thoughts william uh i'm in line with everybody else i want it i want the painted ones on this list instead um yeah there you go I guess starting with Iron Beak, I'm going to remember Iron Beak a lot more in the abstract than Iron Beak himself. I'm going to remember that this was the book where we established the importance of the sparrows in the Abbey. But, you know, give me a couple of months and I might be remiss to explain why I remember that they were so important. <laughs> um, because, yeah, once he gets into the Abbey, it's just very standard villain stuff. Um and even the responses to him aren't that cool. We get we get Constance, we get Constance having a few shining moments, and we get Cornflower having some redemption from Redwall's storyline. But yeah, otherwise, uh, Iron Beak is <coughs> sorry. Iron Beak is mostly just a vehicle to make the other characters look good. Um, and then Slagar, I gave Slagar a nine. Oh, sorry, Iron Beak, I gave a five. Slagar, I gave a nine. Uh, for all the reasons that y'all already said super compelling villain i love the idea that we've got a bad guy running around that we cannot trust um the the main characters can't trust him obviously matthias can't trust him matameo can't trust him any word that comes out of his mouth might be a lie but also we as the readers just the fact that jakes leaves that whole period of his timeline in the dark leaves a lot of question marks for us to fill in it makes him very mysterious and interesting i love it a lot and even when he gives his one monologue to matameo we can't necessarily believe it yeah great thoughts that's very well put um that puts slagar the cruel an 8.75 um average uh just edged out a little bit by Clooney, who's sitting at a nine and then general Ironbeak is now our lowest rated at 4.75 um lowest rated i think that's well earned general Ironbeak. um all right before we get to our final review for uh matameo we gotta talk about the deaths i love counting up these deaths uh every book i don't know why 
it it just becomes a whole thing where as I'm reading, I keep like an active tally. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, actual deaths, like the stuff that we can absolutely confirm we saw that dead body and the projected deaths for this book, which I think are going to vary quite a bit. Um, let's hear your guesses, William and Tiff. I'll go ahead and go first. I think actual deaths were probably somewhere in the ballpark of 100 to 120. Um, implied deaths, maybe 200 to 250. And the reason I'm saying that, and this gives me a good chance to, to kind of make this point that I haven't gotten around to yet, and it gives Tiff a chance to think and make a better answer than I did. Um, I think Jake's really leveled up his combat descriptions here. Um, the battle in Malchorus especially was an awesome conclusion for this storyline. Whereas in Redwall, we got two paragraphs and then a bell fell on Clooney and it was over. It was, <laughs> it, it was such a, it was such a bummer let down in Redwall that it makes the, the success of this battle scene really stand out to me. And <clears throat> I keep coughing. I'm so sorry. Um, I think that's where my high, high uh, death total comes from. One, the the shrews getting picked off the entire way to get to Malchoris. And then when we get into Malchoris, there are spears flying left and right. And there are swords being spun in a whirlwind pattern. I think that death total jumped pretty quick. I think this is a really, I'm really interested to hear what your estimate is of the total because I was really surprised when only, what, what was it, five Sparrow Warriors came back? Because I thought mm -hmm. I thought they had a decent-sized army. And then the fact that only five came back, I was like, well, was the army a lot smaller than I thought it was? Um, and then same with the, the rats in Malchorus. It was really hard for me to... I didn't know what scale we were talking about. You know, they kept saying that the the rats kept pouring in, but at the same time, it was an amount that they were eventually able to overcome with a pretty small army. So was it really that many rats? Um, and so I, I, there were several times throughout the book, I actually wondered myself, like, how many are we actually talking about? Like, I don't feel like I have a good sense of that. Um, I'm going to guess actual described deaths was maybe 75 because i don't actually i don't feel like there was as much maybe i'm crazy i don't feel like there was as much description of like individual deaths as some of the other books like when um when some of the other villains were you know just well maybe i'm crazy maybe it just didn't feel like as much i'm gonna say 75 described and then 300 total all right so this is gonna be surprising i think to you guys uh so the actual number of like described deaths we see a body we can literally count how that body died is 53 in this book I, yeah, it doesn't, looking back, I don't remember them describing that many. 
it was yeah. all the and it was a bunch it, of one-offs it wasn't as many like oh and then he and then he hit three you know it wasn't as many like groups more just like one-offs here and there yeah it it's really clever the way that jakes describes action in this book and describes the violence because it is super violent but in terms of like the actual number of bodies that we see uh it's actually much on the lower side than i think what you would expect from the amount of violence that's in this book um so 53 gruesomely described deaths and they are i feel for, at least for me some of the most gruesome deaths in the series to date but then we get into the implied numbers and this is where things get completely off the rails do either of you remember how many black robes are assigned to slagar when he gets his company from malchorus 40 i think it's eight score if i remember oh, correctly really? oh no so that's 160 black robes to slagar's company and then we hear that Malchorus boasts, and again, I don't know if this is just boasting or if this, this is his real number, right? But he boasts that he has 10 times as many in his employ, which insinuates that there must be 1,600 of these black robes living under Malchorus. Oh no, and then when everything collapses, they all died. They all die. So oh, no. in, in terms of in terms of the death count, right? If we just insinuate like the actual battling and whatnot, I actually estimated it's anywhere between 200 and 900, which is a huge range. But Jake's is really clever about kind of hiding the scale of this violence. But there was a lot of questioning too of like, how many Sparrow Warriors were there? How many shrews went on this journey from the Gaussim? How many um, people were slain in the Black Robe fight? with Orlando even before Malchorus collapses. But I think that from what Jake's kind of insinuates, it's it's anywhere in that range of 200 to 900 until we consider that the black robes all died in Malchorus. And then we're somewhere in the vicinity of maybe 1800 to 2000 deaths in this book. This is the bloodiest book we've seen so far by huge volumes abbas germain and martin are spinning in their tombs <laughs> with this realization <laughs> that redwall has caused so much death and destruction uh that's insane I don't know if I should guess anymore. I'm so. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I don't know if that's a good one to guess. I I had had spoiled myself with a number, um, but I there's no way I would have guessed that either. So, you guys had sound reasoning. All right, now that we've got the uh, the deaths out of the way, uh, let's conclude this episode with our uh, our final numbers for Madame Ayo. Uh William, you want to kick kick us off? Yeah, um, I I have very mixed feelings about this one. Um, there are some things that it does very, 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 very well. Um, Warbeak, Queen, Forever, 
Um, the horror aspects were amazing for me. Um, so many things, but there's so many pacing issues to balance that out that I just don't have the same glowing love for it as I do for, say, Moss Flower. Um, Slagar's death at the end, I understand what you all are saying about subverting our expectations, but I think there's ways you can do that that still feel satisfying, and this just doesn't for me. There's a lot of points where this falls shallow, so I think I'm going to amend the rating that I put in the spreadsheet just a little bit. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and leave it at a seven. It it was good. I'm glad I read it. Hail to the horror. Um, but I, I want to see, one, I want to see a new plot. I want to see something else happen in the next book where we don't just go venturing off into some mystical, slightly unknown um, castle or volcano or underground tunnel. I, I don't want just a fetch quest again. G- give me something new here because um, that's getting tired. Um, and I, I want it to feel a little bit tighter next time, hopefully. Um, but yeah, I'm going to sit on a seven. Well put. Yeah. Uh, good good thoughts with that. Um, Tiff, how about you? So William brought his down to a seven. I actually brought mine up to a seven after our discussion. Um, because I I didn't have the, as many problems with pacing as you guys did. Um, I, I actually liked it. I liked, I don't know, I liked how chaotic it was. I was okay with not getting to know individual characters because it felt like they were moving really cool as groups. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I liked a lot of that. Um, for me, it was more, it was just the tone, just how dark it was um that brought it down and it just i just don't want to see as much of that in the future um you know if i had my way we would go back to the happy optimistic red wall attitude um and so yeah that's what it brought it down for me because you know it's it's cool as a one-off i like it you know i think it has its place but i'd prefer to go back to the old tone very well said uh, and how about you, Trevor? I'm going to be the one that uh, breaks, I think, a little bit from from the the room. Uh, I give this one a 9 out of 10. I, I don't want to say that I don't have problems with it because I absolutely do. But at the end of the day, I have to reflect on the experience I had reading this book and the way that I think about it. And for me... This was such a tremendous break with tradition in terms of its tone. It is so much darker, I think, than either Mossflower or Redwall was daring to be. And I think that its themes of revenge, its themes of trauma, its themes of um, kind of like a good and stark evil stand out really well to me. I keep coming back to like, these books thinking about like what were the strongest memories I have of Redwall and by far Madame Mayo is one of the strongest reactions I've had to a book it's so memorable to me because of Slagar because of Blogalog because of 
you know, the, the chase into Malkaris. Um, and all of these things for me just work so well in what I want out of a book, out of a fantasy book. And I feel like the fact that this children's novel, you know, this middle grade fantasy is so willing to commit to a darker tone and just be something very different in this world um, and also be so extraordinarily epic just sells the book for me. Um, this is one of my most cherished childhood books and coming back to it as an adult, I felt very much validated that this still holds all of that magic for me in a weird way. Um, and that's why I feel like I can be so much more forgiving of what I think are its obvious flaws. I still walk away thinking this is an incredibly memorable reading experience. And that's why I rate it so highly. Very well said, Trevor. Uh, I also hope that this gets into the recording because we had a technical issue last last review episode and we did not get your review on tape. So uh, I hope it's here. And if you're wondering, why didn't Trevor say anything in our last review? That's why. Uh, thank you, podcasting service. Uh, I feel very similar to Trevor. I put uh, Matabeo at an eight. Um, this book I thought was really enjoyable, despite some of the criticisms I have about the the kind of subplot going on in Redwall and General Ironbeak. Um, I think that there's a lot of really great ideas in here. And I think that if anything, Jake's just has too many ideas and too many characters. Um, but all everything that's in here, uh, I do think is really enjoyable. And I had a good time with it. Uh, even past some of the pacing issues. Um, as a matter of fact, I think that this makes me like Redwall, the first book, even more, uh, purely because we get the continuation of these characters. And so I think I kind of look back more fondly on the first book with all these characters. Um, and so because of that, that's why I'd get, I'd give it an eight. All right, so that puts Matameo at a 7.75, um, sitting below Mossflower, which we all gave a 10, uh, and just uh, beating out uh, Redwall by one point. All right, well, thank you guys so much for joining this big review episode discussion. As always, it's so good to hear your thoughts on these episodes, and uh, thank you guys so much for spending the time with us here today. Um, as a, just a reminder, if you want to support the show, the best way you can do that is to leave a review wherever you're listening to this, uh, whatever your podcast service of choices, uh, reviews really help us become a lot more visible and we can continue to grow our little community, um, around Redwall. Uh, you can also find us on Instagram and threads at books in badgers. Uh, that's with an N in the middle books in badgers. You can also email us any questions that you have at booksandbadgers at gmail.com. Um, we're still working on a review episode, kind of a bonus episode. I don't think it'll be in this season, but please send in your questions so that we can do that episode. We want to make more great content for you all. Uh, and if you love our voices, uh, you can find Trevor on Slayhouse Presents. Uh, you can also find William Sterling on Killer Medians. And then you can also check out Tiff Avery's work at Magical Moments of Many Monsters on Instagram. It's all one word magical moments of many monsters well thank you guys so much yet again for this awesome discussion and we'll see you in our next book 